don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, Crypto Economy crew, and welcome back to the show. We've got another quick read for today. We're going to be jumping into, uh, I said um, in a couple episodes last week, this is going to be one, uh, a week where we kind of focus on the ideas of electronic cash and then the subsequent benefit and or risk uh, that come with them. And then uh, by that same measure or by that uh, uh, same set of uh, ideas, the risks of a cashless society and uh, full state control and or surveillance over money. And so I want to kind of start with a foundational piece that I think this actually falls in line. This is something, one of the ones that Stefan Levera just kind of shot me uh, not too long ago in a, uh, uh, in a tweet. And it's by Hans Hermann Hoppe, and it is on Mises.org. And it's titled, Why the State Demands Control of Money. So I think this will put into context um the essentially the position of the state in this entire thing and why it would be so beneficial for them to have something like cashless society which we will be getting to but this is more the foundational idea of controlling money in and of itself it's a really really great piece um particularly for anybody who doesn't have a lot of familiarity with uh Hans Hermann Hoppe and like uh his previous work but uh uh, yes, we will be jumping right into that piece in just a moment. I do want to say I went to my first, I, t- I just tweeted about this, uh, I went to my first Bitcoin meetup in like a year and uh, had a lot of fun, met a couple of guys who actually listened to the show, so that's awesome. Uh, Steve, Daniel, JC, uh, Wendy, you guys were great, had a lot of fun, and uh, I'm going to try, I'm trying to keep up with going to meetups. Uh, a lot more. I want to actually get out there because I spend a ton of time just in front of my computer and interacting on Twitter and reading and recording stuff with my microphone, which is great, but I don't really get to interact with a lot of people. Twitter is only so, you can only so much call that interacting with people. Um, And uh, so I'm going to try to get out there and be a little less of a Bitcoin hermit and actually join some meetups and go out and meet some people because there's actually a pretty big um there's a there's a pretty big cryptocurrency in like kind of bitcoin uh space in my area so uh hopefully I'll get to meet a lot of people and I also I, I've been thinking about um I kind of want to do some exploration of uh people which I'd actually never really got to it and I, for some reason couldn't remember that this was part of the reason I went out to the meetup uh, was that I want to talk to people about what that first hook was. What got them interested in Bitcoin the very first time? Was it the politics? Was it some, something about the technology? Was it the fact that you like, 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 you just kept bumping into it and it wouldn't go away? Like, like I'm, I'm really curious about that initial hook. What is it that keeps people... What is it that crossed that barrier from this is just silly internet money to, all right, let me learn a little bit about this. Let me take the next step and see what this actually is, uh, aside from just making the assumption that whatever I read from, insert mostly moronic journalist here, uh, says about Bitcoin. So um, I want to try to dig into that a little bit. And I'm, and I'm considering uh, if people are up for it, actually getting them on the show to talk about this. Um, but uh, that's, still, that's still up in the air. I just want to do a little bit of exploration for that. Uh, like really what drew people here for the purpose of trying to get into that, that average person mindset. Um, like... Uh, trying to get back like it's been it's been so many years since i've thought about bitcoin as anything other than uh a, an amazing technology that like you, you you can easily really easily forget what you used to think you know what like what your original perspective was or what you used to believe after you have like a big 
uh, frame shift in how you see the world, it's so hard to see it the other way. You know what I mean? So uh, that's something that I think I want to, I want to try to explore and um, make it easier to explain it or show the benefits and what's, what's exciting about this technology from from a perspective that already doesn't that doesn't already know a lot of the important details you know what how, how do you get this how do you find that hook to somebody who doesn't know the history of money doesn't know what money is like what's that what's that trigger there that makes them go this is interesting as opposed to just outright dismissing it so i think that's a i think that's a kind of fun exploration that um could be useful and uh, it might be something might be something really important uh, down the road um, because I know, like you know, when we have a next uh, another bull run uh, in the next couple of years, uh, it's going to be, you know, maybe maybe that's really the driving force. Maybe it's just this price is skyrocketing, and I I'm continuously told this thing is going to die. You know, maybe that's the major pull, um, which it, it very well could be. It just could be something as simple as that. But regardless, uh, regardless, it's I think it's important to take an exploration um, into what is making people take a second or a, a a closer look at Bitcoin. What makes them cross that take that first step um, into kind of peering down the rabbit hole? So uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully that becomes uh, is fruitful, and maybe we'll have some episodes specifically about it. Maybe we'll have some interviews or crypto chats. Um, uh, covering that topic with some people that I met. Uh, so we will see. I'm going to try to stick with the meetups. Um, again, had a lot of fun last night, and I think I will be going to one tonight as well. So um, stay tuned for that. Don't forget to subscribe and check out CryptoEconomy.life. Follow me on Twitter at the Cryptoeconomy so that you don't miss it when I have uh, some new developments on that front uh, coming in the future. All right, let's go ahead and uh, just jump right into our piece, again, by Hans Hermann Hoppe. Uh, this was actually published in 2011, and this is on Mises.org. If you are looking for a place for some serious reads on economics and money and, like, the histories, the, the history, the principles, I mean, just you, you literally could not find a better resource than Mises.org. And practically all of it is free. They have whole, they have entire books up here for free. Um, Holzman's uh, "The Ethics of Money Production" is astounding. Um, so there's so much to cover here, and obviously I have read a number of pieces from Mises on the show. Uh, so it is, be, without a doubt, uh, very, very highly recommended. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into this piece by Hoppe: Why the State demands control of money. Imagine you are in command of the state, defined as an institution that possesses a territorial monopoly of ultimate decision-making in every case of conflict, including conflicts involving the state and its agents itself, and by implication, the right to tax, i.e., to unilaterally determine the price that your subjects must pay you to perform the task of ultimate decision-making. To act under these constraints, or rather lack of constraints, is what constitutes politics and political action, and it should be clear from the outset that politics then, by its very nature, always means mischief. Not from your point of view, of course, but mischief from the point of view of those who subject to your rule as ultimate judge. Predictably, you will use your position to enrich yourself at other people's expense. More specifically, we can predict in particular what your attitude and policy vis-a-vis money and banking will be. Assume that you rule over a territory that is developed beyond the stage of a primitive barter economy and where a common medium of exchange, i.e., a money is in use. First off, it is easy to see why you would be particularly interested in money and monetary affairs. As state ruler, you can in principle confiscate whatever you want and provide yourself with an unearned income. 
But rather than confiscating various producer or consumer goods, you will naturally prefer to confiscate money. Because money, as the most easily and widely saleable and acceptable good of all, allows you the greatest freedom to spend your income as you like on the greatest variety of goods. First and foremost, then, the taxes you impose on society will be money taxes, whether on property or income. You will want to maximize your money tax revenues. In this attempt, however, you will quickly encounter some rather intractable difficulties. Eventually, your attempts to further increase your tax income will encounter resistance in that higher tax rates will not lead to higher but to lower tax revenue. Your income, your spending money, declines because producers, burdened with increasingly higher tax rates, simply produce less. In this situation, you only have one other option to further increase or at least maintain your current level of spending by borrowing such funds. And for that, you must go to banks, and hence your special interest also in banks and the banking industry. If you borrow money from banks, these banks will automatically take an active interest in your future well-being. They will want you to stay in business. For example, they want the state to go on in its exploitation business. And since banks tend to be major players in society, such support is certainly beneficial to you. On the other hand, as a negative, if you borrow money from banks, you are not only expected to pay your loan back, but to pay interest on top. The question then that arises for you as the ruler is, how can I free myself of these two constraints, i.e., of tax resistance in the form of falling tax revenue and of the need to borrow from and pay interest to banks? It is not too difficult to see what the ultimate solution to your problem is. You can reach the desired independence of taxpayers and tax payments and of banks if only you establish yourself first as a territorial monopolist of the production of money. On your territory, only you are permitted to produce money. But that is not sufficient, because as long as money is a regular good that must be expensively produced, there's nothing in it for you except expenses. More importantly, then, you must use your monopoly position in order to lower the production cost and the quality of money as close as possible to zero. Instead of costly quality money such as gold or silver, you must see to it that worthless pieces of paper that can be produced at practically zero cost will become money. Normally, no one would accept worthless pieces of paper as payment for anything. Pieces of paper are acceptable as payment only insofar as they are titles to something else, for example, property titles. In other words, then, you must replace pieces of paper that were titles to money with pieces of paper that are titles to nothing. Under competitive conditions, in other words, if everyone were free to produce money, a money that can be produced at almost zero cost would be produced up to a quantity where marginal revenue equals marginal cost. And because marginal cost is zero, the marginal revenue, i.e. the purchasing power of this money, would be zero as well. Hence the necessity to monopolize the production of paper money so as to restrict its supply in order to avoid hyperinflationary conditions and the disappearance of money from the market altogether and a flight into real values. And the more so, the cheaper the money commodity. In a way, you have thus accomplished what all alchemists and their sponsors wanted to achieve. You have produced something valuable, money with purchasing power, out of something practically worthless. What an achievement. It costs you practically nothing and you can turn around and buy yourself something really valuable, such as a house or a Mercedes, and you can achieve these wonders not just for yourself, but also for your friends and acquaintances, of which you discover that you have all of a sudden far more than you used to have, including many economists who explain why your monopoly is really good for everyone. What are the effects? First and foremost, more paper money does not in the slightest affect the quantity or quality of 
all other non-monetary goods. There exist just as many other goods around as before. This immediately refutes the notion, apparently held by most if not all mainstream economists, that, quote, more money can somehow increase social wealth. To believe this, as everyone proposing a so-called easy money policy as an efficient and, quote, socially responsible way out of economic troubles apparently does, it is to believe in magic that stones, or rather paper, can be turned into bread. Rather, what the additional money you printed will affect is twofold. On the one hand, money prices will be higher than they would be otherwise, and the purchasing power per unit of money will be lower. In a word, the result will be inflation. More importantly, however, all the while the greater amount of money does not increase or decrease the total amount of presently existing social wealth, the total quantity of all goods in society, it redistributes the existing wealth in favor of you and your friends and acquaintances. In other words, those who get your money first. You and your friends are relatively enriched, own a larger part of the total social wealth at the expense of impoverishing others, who as a result own less. The problem for you and your friends with this institutional setup is not that it doesn't work. It works perfectly, always to your own and your friend's advantage, and always at the expense of others. All you have to do is avoid hyperinflation. For in that case, people would avoid using money and flee into real values, thus robbing you of your magic wand. The problem with your paper money monopoly, if there is one at all, is only that this fact will be immediately noticed also by others and recognized as the big criminal ripoff that it indeed is. But this problem can be overcome too if, in addition to monopolizing the production of money, you also set yourself up as a banker and enter the banking business with the establishment of a central bank. Because you can create paper money out of thin air, you can also create credit out of thin air. In fact, because you can create credit out of nothing, without any savings on your part, you can offer loans at cheaper rates than anyone else, even at an interest rate as low as zero, or even at a negative rate. With this ability, not only is your former dependency on banks and the banking industry eliminated, you can moreover make banks dependent on you and you can forge a permanent alliance and complicity between banks and the state. You don't even have to become involved in the business of investing the credit yourself. That task and the risk involved in it, you can safely leave to commercial banks. What you, your central bank, need to do is only this. You create credit out of thin air and then loan this money at below market interest rates to commercial banks. Instead of you paying interest to banks, Banks now pay interest to you, and the banks in turn loan out your newly created easy credit to their business friends at somewhat higher but still sub-market interest rates to earn from the interest differential. In addition, to make the banks especially keen on working with you, you may permit the banks to create a certain amount of their own new credit, of checkbook money, in addition and on top of the credit that you have created. Fractional Reserve Banking What are the consequences of this monetary policy? To a large extent, they are the same as with an easy money policy. First, an easy credit policy is also inflationary. More money is brought into circulation and prices will be higher, and the purchasing power of money lower than would have been the case otherwise. Second, the credit expansion too has no effect on the quantity or quality of all goods currently in existence. It neither increases nor decreases their amount. More money is just this, more paper. It does not and cannot increase social wealth by one iota. Third, easy credit also engenders a systematic redistribution of social wealth in favor of you, the central bank, and the commercial banks within your cartel you receive an interest return on money that you have created at practically zero cost out of thin air instead of on money costly saved from an existing income. 
and so do the banks, who earned additional interest on your costless money loans. Both you and your banker friends thereby appropriate an unearned income. You and the banks are enriched at the expense of all real money savers who receive a lower interest return than they otherwise would. In other words, without the injection of your and the bank's cheap credit into the credit market. On the other hand, there also exists a fundamental difference between an easy print-and-spend money policy and an easy print-and-loan credit policy. First off, an easy credit policy alters the production structure, what is produced and by whom, in a highly significant way. You, the chief of the central bank, can create credit out of thin air. You do not have to first save money out of your income. In other words, cut your own expenses and thus abstain from buying certain non-money goods, as every normal person must if he extends credit to someone. You only have to turn on the printing press and can thus undercut any interest rate demanded of borrowers by savers elsewhere in the market. Granting credit does not involve any sacrifice on your part, which is why this institution is so, quote, nice. If things then go well, you will be paid a positive interest return on your paper investment. And if they don't go well, well, as the monopoly producer of money, you can always make up losses more easily than anyone else by covering your losses with even more printed paper. Without costs and no genuine personal risk of losses, then you can grant credit essentially indiscriminately to everyone and for any purpose without concern for the creditworthiness of the debtor or the soundness of his business plan. Because of your easy credit, certain people, in particular investment bankers who otherwise would not be deemed sufficiently creditworthy, and certain projects, in particular of banks and their main clients, that would not be considered profitable but wasteful or too risky instead do get credit and do get funded. Essentially, the same applies to the commercial banks within your banking cartel. Because of their special relationship to you as the first recipients of your costless, low-interest, paper-money credit, the banks, too, can offer loans to prospective lenders at interest rates below market interest. And if things go well for them, they go well. And if they don't, they can rely on you as the monopolistic producer of money to bail them out in the same way as you bail yourself out of any financial trouble by more paper money. Accordingly, the banks too will be less discriminating in the selection of their clients and their business plans and more prone to funding the wrong people and the wrong projects. And there is a second significant difference between a print and spend and a print and loan policy. And this difference explains why the income and wealth redistribution in you and your banker's friend's favor that is set in motion by easy credit takes the specific form of a temporal boom-bust cycle. In other words, of an initial phase of seeming general prosperity, expected increases in future incomes and wealth, followed by a phase of widespread impoverishment when the prosperity of the boom period is revealed as a widespread illusion. This boom-bust feature is the logical and physically necessary consequence of credit created out of thin air, of credit unbacked by savings, of fiduciary credit, or however else you may call it, and of the fact that every investment takes time and only shows later on, at some time in the future, whether it is successful or not. The reason for the business cycle is as elementary as it is fundamental. Robinson Crusoe can give a loan of fish which he has not consumed to Friday. Friday can convert the savings into a fishing net. He can eat the fish while constructing the net. And with the help of the net, then, Friday, in principle, is capable of repaying his loan to Robinson plus interest and still earn a profit of additional fish for himself. But this is physically impossible if Robinson's loan is only a paper note, denominated in fish, but unbacked by real fish savings. 
In other words, if Robinson has no fish, because he has consumed them all. Then, and necessarily so, Friday must fail in his investment endeavor. In a simple barter economy, of course, this becomes immediately apparent. Friday will not accept Robinson's paper credit in the first place, but only real commodity credit. And because of this, the boom-bust cycle will not even get started. But in a complex monetary economy, the fact that credit was created out of thin air is not noticeable. Every credit note looks like any other. And because of this, the notes are accepted by the takers of credit. This does not change the fundamental fact of reality that nothing can be produced out of nothing and that investment projects undertaken without any real funding whatsoever, savings, must fail. But it explains why a boom, an increased level of investment accompanied by the expectation of higher future income and wealth, can get started. Friday does accept the note instead of immediately refusing it. And it explains why it then takes a while until the physical reality reasserts itself and reveals such expectations as illusory. But what's a little crisis to you? Even if your path to riches is through repeated crises brought about by your paper money regime and central bank policies, from your point of view, from the viewpoint as the head of state and chief of the central bank, this form of print and loan wealth redistribution in your own and your banker's friend's favor while less immediate than that achieved with a simple print-and-spend policy, is still much preferable because it is far more difficult to see through and recognize for what it is. Rather than coming across as a plain fraud and parasite, in pursuing an easy credit policy, you can even pretend that you are engaged in the selfless task of, quote, investing in the future rather than spending on present frivolities and, quote, healing economic crises rather than causing them. What a world we live in. All right, let's hit our sponsor really quick, and we will jump back into some commentary about this amazing piece by Hans Hermann Hoppe. All right, we are back. So, I hope you guys enjoyed that article. Again, that was from Mises.org, Why the State Demands Control of Money. So I feel like this piece does an incredibly good job of making it clear what is happening. And um, with, the, with the introduction of paper money and, more importantly, quote-unquote, paper credit, the ability, ability to loan money that doesn't exist, and the, the unbelievable arrogance of the position that you are doing something for someone else, that you are the, you are the one investing in the future or healing our economic problems, by loaning money to people who are quote-unquote in need of the money. A loan is a liability. You're giving yourself, you are giving yourself the money when you loan it to somebody else. You're saying, this money doesn't exist, so here's a million dollars, I will give it to you, you have to pay it back to me. You're creating an obligation for something that never existed. You're saying, pay me back this million dollars that I never had. Plus, give me some interest because I'm giving you a million dollars. No, I'm giving you a liability. I'm giving you, a, I'm giving you a, the position of a servant. I'm, I'm making you my slave and profiting from it uh, and, and expecting you to thank me. It's just a, it's an utterly ridiculous proposition. Um, like when you truly understand how it works, it's such a fraudulent, I, I mean, just embarrassingly so, that, um, like, it almost makes you look back and feel just utterly stupid for having had the veil pulled over your eyes, like, so, like, so blindly. I mean, granted, I didn't know anything about, you know, finance or anything like that. But once you start digging into fractional reserve banking, it's such a criminal enterprise. Um, and it's the most amazing inter enterprise. I mean, just the, the, the level of wealth redistribution is just unfathomable. Uh, the, the, the power that it grants these institutions is in, it just shocking. And that 
people don't realize. Like, they're, they're, like you ask, you know, like, oh, wealth inequality is so bad because of the rich. No, the wealth inequality is so bad because of the wealth redistribution systemic to how our money works. Like, this is why it feels like a rat race that is never ending. This is why it feels like everyone is in debt and nobody can pay it off and nobody understands why. Why are things so ex- so expensive? Like you ask, like there's so many times and if you don't get these core fundamental things, there's so many uh, prerequisites to understanding what the heck is going on in all of this, all of the problems that are slowly arising and growing and being exacerbated in our economy. The endless price increases of healthcare, the never-ending skyrocketing of the price of education, the never-ending price, uh, price increases of housing. If you think about it, like, there's so many times where, like, you know, you try to talk about, like, credit markets and stuff, and, you know, they shouldn't be able to loan money at low interest rates and give it to students or give it to people who want houses. And then people will literally ask, you know, well, how will we ever afford housing if we don't do this? It's like you're talking about the price of housing in an economy where everybody is being loaned brand new money out of existence that no one has earned to buy it. You're talking about a house that's 20 times more expensive than it ever would be in a real economy. And same goes for the price of health care. If the government is just, if these institutions are just being nice and loaning money to people to pay for ridiculously overpriced health care that's, uh, that's in an industry that has no incentive to change or uh, actually get customers um, based on what's affordable, if nobody is challenging their prices, if nobody is shopping, if nobody is looking at, well, this steak is $50 and it doesn't seem any better than this steak right here that is $5, how is the $50 price of steak going to fall if people are still just blindfolded buying it? And that's exactly what the government is doing, is they're, they're propping up these educational institutions that are incredibly overpriced, producing a crappy product that no longer has anything to do with being productive or successful in, uh, in the economy. Education has become a means to its own ends. Everyone just has to get educated in what? Who cares? Just learn something. Just, you know, learn how to be a sociologist. Learn uh, government history. Spend $400,000 on this education. And uh, if it doesn't turn out that you can produce anything useful in society, well, you know, at least the government helped you get educated. And it, the, the whole thing is just such a scam. It's such a scam that it's painful. And... Uh, and, and the only way, if you want to disprove it, there's this very simple way. How do you produce something if you've not saved the capital to do it? If you do not have the things to produce a thing, to produce something new or make something better, how are you going to do it? How do you do it with paper? How do you do it with points in a bank account? You are getting those resources from somewhere, and that person is being cheated they just don't know it. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, I hope that that article was easy to follow. Um, obviously, this is a very big point of contention, and it's why Bitcoin is so important. It's one of those things that, like, this is such a difficult thing to get across. And it's so at odds with the normal mentality. It's just so out of the Overton window of what everybody thinks and grows up of just, you know, the cartoon version of the world. I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. As if the government is just doing all these things for our own good and that without this massive confiscation of wealth, without this incredible redistribution to just the bankers and the financing system, that, that without that we would just be helpless we just wouldn't know have any idea what to do and uh our own greed and self-interest would consume us and it is only because the just and selfless government loaning us all the funds that we have to pay back to them it is it is because of that that's the only reason society exists 
uh, it's so frustrating because I, I remember, I remember the the resistance to like being explained this, um, and it's so hard to break out. It's it's like a part of you has to has to die. There's this there's this part of you in your mind that is attached to what you think the world is. And if somebody challenged that, particularly in something like this, to suggest that we have been so blatantly scammed for so long and that I fell for it, like, that's, that's a bit of an identity crisis when you have to come to terms with something like that. Because it hurts. It's, it's saying that, it's the admission that, you know, I was kind of an idiot. Um, like, that somebody just, it's like being tricked by something obvious in realizing just how gullible you were. And technically it's not obvious, but you still feel that way. When, when you realize that you've been deeply lied to, and obviously, obviously it is because of greed and self-interest that the government and the central banks confiscate this enormous power and keep it entirely for themselves and then make this big political club that, you know, for that they just market to everyone they market their own income and their own power as the source for all that is good in society it feels awful to think you got duped by something so obvious after you see the real story um and and i remember those transitions like multiple transitions that i had in my history where i had to stop and go i can't believe that that is what i thought I had to deal with the fact that, like, I I once thought our central bank was this amazing check on the power of government, and and that our central bank was there to protect people from, uh, like, government uh, control of uh, of our money. It just it was oof, oof. I have the embarrassment of things that I used to believe. And I was, I was passionate about those things, you know? Like, I was never, as soon as I started learning about them and digging a little deeper, um, before the questions really hit, before I would stumble upon something and be like, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I feel strongly, so let's just, let's just not, let's, let's not take it there. Uh, let's not go there and uh, hit this pain point. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I just want to be, uh, I want to be confirmed in my bias. Um, and we all have that, you know, and it's, it's, it's such a barrier to admit fault in yourself and realize that you got duped by somebody with a magic wand. Um, and, uh, but I love this article. Um, this is one of, one of many on the, the concepts behind the production of money. Uh, and I like how it just kind of puts you in the place. It's like, well, what could you do? to get around the fact that you're going to have this stupid limit where reality doesn't give you all the resources you want. Oh, well, you can just print money. It's like, mm, but that's a little obvious. How can you hide that? Uh, it's just a really great step-by-step and then shows that the boom-bust crises uh, that are, are a consequence are a natural part of the whole thing. Everybody's just uh, starting all these projects that we absolutely have no savings to cover. We haven't cut down the trees yet to build the houses that we all started. So housing prices skyrocket. Everybody's buying all this stuff. Construction companies are going just gung-ho on uh, building as many houses as possible. And then suddenly all these prices are higher and higher and higher, and they're having to take more and more loans. And it's like, how can the, how, why is it that the loans aren't keeping up with the prices? And that's what happens. Because there's no actual production backing it, the, uh, the prices, by necessity, outweigh the credit, the availability of credit, because the credit's not real. The credit is not actual production. It's every new dollar loaned is a new project or a new investment started that didn't have actual money or resources to conclude the project. Um, so you have a million houses at the peak of the housing bubble that are halfway done, and it's like, suddenly, the market's like, we're out of wood. How did this happen? How did we run out of wood? We just started building a million houses, and nobody's done. What happened? Everything was going so great. And 
Then it's default after default. And then the, the, the dominoes start to fall. And it's, and it's this giant derivative and this giant package of mortgages and these securities and uh, this ETF. And all this stuff is just starts to domino across the board when prices start to tell us again that, no, no, stupid, we never had any of these resources. And, and it's like, oh, for nine years, this, this President A did such a good job of making us healthy and productive. And now President B has ruined it all. And of course, none of it has to do with who was president. They're all the exact same. They all do the exact same thing. They all just loan credit out to, uh, to get the projects that they want done to instill, uh, to enforce their vision of the world onto everyone and make us pay for it without knowing that we're paying for it. And then, and then they pit us against each other. Then they, then they design, they just take these silly social issues that divide people over nonsense. It's never about, you know, we're never talking about the actual credit. We're never talking about the unbelievable abuse and fraud that's going on. We're talking about how we can't agree on gun rights. Or we're talking about how we can't agree on the definition of marriage. Why has the government got anything to do with the definition of marriage? Aside, aside from all that stuff, they pit us against each other. And it's the, it's the people versus the per- people raising, the consumer versus the people raising the prices. All the business owners are just evil for not eating this cost and passing it on to the consumer. And which is it's just, it, it's, it's, using, it's using the producers in the economy as a human shield. It's they've started a fight, sold bullets to the other team, and then they've grabbed everybody that they've made pay the price, holding in front of them so that they can take all the bullets. It's insane how immoral it is. But most probably don't even know that that's what ha- that is what's happening. They're just sucked into this system like the rest of us, believing this fairy tale that paper money is real value that we can just print $95 trillion and the Green New Deal will save us all from climate collapse. It just, oh man. As Hoppe says, what a world we live in. Yeah, but what you gonna do? I guess we just use Bitcoin and design it to withstand uh, this nonsense. Uh, and that also brings... It also brings such sharp focus into the reason, into the true adversary of Bitcoin and why Bitcoin must be the most secure, streamlined, consensus, uh, uh, consensus-making machine that it can in any way be designed to be. Um, and there's just such an incredible, there's the potential to fix this. There is the potential to fix this. Think about that. And that is because anyone can verify the rules. Anyone can verify exactly how much money there is. That the production of that money is costly and adds that the mining power that produced, that issued that money is increasing the security of the money. That as Sabo says, there is an unforgeable costliness to our money, making it real, making it sound, and making it an actual representation of the movement of value and resources in the, in the economy. So that's, that's an unbelievable potential um, to, fix, to fix finance um, and not, not fix corruption, not fix greed. Not fix humans, but to fix the fraud, the systemic fraud of our financial system. And that's worth, that's worth tens of trillions without breaking a sweat. That's why Bitcoin maximalists say, you're an idiot for selling today. You're, you're foolish for not seeing what this 
but what value is going to be reacquired by the people producing it, by the actual people keeping this economy alive, that are producing to make things better, to be more efficient, to not waste precious capital and human resources on nonsense, to not make people slaves to failed, inevitably failed projects. This is why people say Bitcoin is about freedom. It's about sovereignty. It's about being able to say no to funding this fraud. It's a Ponzi scheme that we are all forced into. And, and Bitcoin is an escape hatch. It's hard not to get passionate about that. All right, so with this as our foundation, uh, we are going to move in to talking more deeply about the concepts of cashless society and the case for electronic cash. Um, and that is with Coin Center's uh, uh, incredible piece um, called The Case for Electronic Cash, talking about privacy and talking about the hedge um, as, as we read with uh, Friday's article, the hedge against negative interest rates. Um, but uh, uh, I think this, with this as kind of our basis for understanding what the motivation is and how critical that it is the make or break for government and central banks. It is their entire power. You realize the threat that Bitcoin is truly under if it becomes consequential in the global economy. Um, like the, this undermines political authority in and of itself. Um, and politics is not known for playing nice. Uh, exactly the opposite. Politics is known for murdering people instead of admitting, admitting their mistake. Uh, and you think they're gonna? You just think they're just gonna throw in the towel on this? No, there will be a fight. Um, and uh, and you also see how powerful a cashless society is in their favor. To be able to introduce negative interest rates, to be able to loan people value that they don't have in order for it to be paid back, and then require an interest payment in the reverse. It's just, it's baffling. It is really baffling that the, something so, so misaligned with reality could survive as long as it has. Um, and it's only because of the size. It's only because of the reach and power of the U.S. economy that the dollar got to where it was. Um, but you see this, we've seen this many times in human history. Um, this is not an uncommon occurrence. This is pretty regular, actually. That's why uh, the, it was the average lifespan of a fiat currency is 27 years. Um, and uh, even though it happened much more slowly, that's one thing that we see these days is hyperinflation is a, uh, a product of the, the sped-up realization of uh, the confiscation of wealth. Uh, and it's only really made possible because of the complete worthlessness of paper money. Um, so it, it's like the paper money goes extremely quickly from very valuable uh, with the illusion that it's backed by something and that uh, you know, the government will meet its obligations to uh, the immediate realization and subsequent one year of transition, like with some place like Venezuela, from this is worth something to I can't get rid of this fast enough, and you just have paper notes blowing around in the streets, and everybody's like, damn it, we have way too much paper. Who even needs this stuff? Some of the recent images of the just streets filled with paper notes, uh, bolivars in Venezuela, are just crazy. Um, this. It's insane to think the destruction that those institutions have caused out of just sheer greed and arrogance. It's truly not, you can't imagine it. Like, you can't, like, you can never get the scope of damage that was actually done. I mean, millions of lives, not only millions of lives ruined, like, populations starved. Uh, just the quality and 
number of services just vanishing, food vanishing, just, just stuff in the economy just absolutely falling apart. Not only that, but that those same people had been made slaves for decades to prop up this imbalance. They were, the, they were the ones being used as the labor to make this imbalance possible. Their lives and time were confiscated in order to fund unsustainable projects instead of what they would have naturally chosen. It's just it's crazy. It, it truly is crazy. Anyway, uh, gone on too long. Uh, let's go ahead and close this here. And we will come back with discussion of the cashless society and the case for private digital money, the case for electronic cash. In the meantime, if you want to do some more digging into this stuff, there is no better resource than Mises.org. So much stuff to cover, and we are going to be hitting another piece, uh, also one that Stefan Levera had a really good tweet thread about. Um, it's a much longer one uh, on uh, why fiat money exists, and it's along these same lines, uh, except far more in-depth and very interesting. So do not miss that one. That will probably come. It may start, I may be starting on that one by the end of this week. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I know I've got, uh, I got a lot to squeeze in here, and I'm still, uh, still in the air about exactly how many episodes the uh, case for electronic cash is going to take us. And I might be hitting one more piece on the topic after we conclude with that. So we will see as we get there. In the meantime, do not forget to subscribe uh, to the podcast, uh, uh, like it and share it out with everybody you know in the crypto economy space, uh, all those Bitcoin maximalists out there, uh, because that is the e- that is the best way that you can do to support this show. You share it out with somebody. Get one more person listening and learning this stuff uh, because uh, that's why I keep doing this. Um, And I'm having a lot of fun, so I don't want to (laughs) stop. All right, guys. Uh, Thank you for listening so much. I will catch you all back here tomorrow. We will be jumping into some really fun stuff. And I'll talk to you then. This has been the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys.